this reading, which is from Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And this is uh, titled, To the Church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These words are for him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do not and do not the things you did first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, good morning to you all. Good to be with you. Um, We have one more short reading before we open up God's Word. And uh, our second reading is from the first letter of John, and it's the first five verses of chapter five. Verse five and the first five verses. And uh, the heading in the NIV is Faith in the Son of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands um, Sorry, to to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we especially thank you that you have given us the freedom to read it together and to explore it together. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be very much amongst us and in our minds and in our hearts, and that you would speak to each one of us, but also that you would speak to us collectively. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Can't see the wood for the trees. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And I'm indebted to Ian because even more topically, taking your eye off the ball. These are all familiar phrases to us. And taken collectively, 
they indicate a blindness to a situation that's actually right on our doorstep. They are phrases that apply when we've lost the plot, to coin a further phrase. Although things may seem on the surface to be running smoothly, the true underlying reason and motivation behind them seems to have been lost. And if we put all of these things together, this is exactly the situation we have before us this morning with the church at Ephesus some 2,000 years ago. But before we look at what seems to have gone wrong for the Ephesian Christians, let us first remind ourselves what Paul wrote to that church in about AD 62. He wrote this, he said, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And doesn't that tell us then that Paul is very proud of the church he founded at Ephesus? And he commends the Ephesian Christians in that church specifically for the following two virtues. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love of all the saints. Now we must remember that the term saints in Paul's letter simply means God's people. You and I are, by that same definition today, Saints, because we are God's people. So Paul compliments the members of the church at Ephesus for the two key elements of what it means to be a Christian. To have faith in Jesus Christ and to love your fellow Christians. And wouldn't you and I be thrilled... If we had received such a letter from Paul describing our church here in Lum, we would be delighted if we were commended for our faith and for our love, wouldn't we? However, this same church at Ephesus received another letter, the one we read earlier, or rather the one that Ian read for us. And that was written in about AD 96. In other words, a mere 30 years later after that first letter they'd received from Paul. And so certainly amongst the fellowship of the Ephesian Christians, there would be a significant number of people within that fellowship who would have remembered that first letter from Paul. And now they read this letter recorded and written by John. And do note that only 30 years has passed. And this is what we now read. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. What a contrast. Remember the height from which you have fallen. I bet you could have heard a pin drop when that single sentence was read out. The members of the Ephesian church must have been absolutely devastated. 
And there would be members amongst that fellowship who would have remembered only 30 years ago that Paul had praised them both for their faith in Jesus Christ and also for their love of the saints. But now remember the height from which you have fallen. It's all collapsed. It's all gone wrong. Their faith and their love as a church fellowship are now in question. But the real sting in the tail is in that ever so personal message. You have forsaken your first love. Now I know this all seems rather negative. Such statements when we read them in the scriptures seem really harsh. And maybe we start to ask ourselves, well, what is the point of completely trashing the confidence of a poor church um, in Ephesus? And I'm sort of completely with you on that one. I'm thinking that myself too. So in order to understand why this was said, we need to also understand the context of this letter in Revelation. And that's then perhaps we can understand why we read this damning statement that's up there um, that's leveled against this group of Christians. Now John, the apostle of Jesus has been used by God to write down these words, which he sees within a prophetic vision given to him by God, and which we today know as the book of Revelation at the end of our Bibles. The early chapters of Revelation include not only one letter, but seven specific letters to seven specific churches that were actually in existence and were well known within the province of Asia. In Revelation chapter 1, before the seven letters to the churches are given, we read this. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's earlier on in chapter 1 of Revelation. And if we look at that, we can learn that these seven letters are written to these seven churches from the context of what is a very positive greeting. Grace and peace from God their Father and from Jesus Christ. You see, these letters, far from being sent simply to condemn these seven churches, are written with great love. And they're written with great love from the Father to express, to the express benefit of these seven churches. Now I know um, I jumped straight in there. I didn't start at the beginning of the letter. I, I jumped into the middle partly to make a point. But what we need to do then is to start at the beginning. And what happens here is that we discover the spiritual author of this letter to the Ephesians. Um, it's not sent by John. John is simply the scribe. He's the the one who has written down this letter, the actual author is, is revealed in the opening verse. These are the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Now, you're probably still puzzled, aren't you? Um, Before we go any further, and this is always the case with Revelation, we have to understand the code that is being used. And if we can break the code, then Revelation suddenly makes a lot of sense to us. Actually, here it's very straightforward, and you're going to have to trust me that I've got the code right here, but the seven stars are the seven ministers of those seven churches. So it's the pastors, the ministers, those who are in charge of those seven churches. And the seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves, the church fellowships in these seven different places within uh, Asia. But we note that the words of this letter come from the one who holds these seven ministers in his right hand and who also walks amongst the lampstands, which are the churches. Now, it is only the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ who perfectly fits that description. So straight away, we know who it is who's writing these letters. And uh, it's Jesus Christ himself. He's the author of these seven letters, and he is the one who in this particular instance is writing this letter to the Ephesian Christians. And uh, as we read on to the next verse, we begin to see what looks like an analysis of strengths and weaknesses. Um, I know that's a sort of management tool that we have to use in this day and age, and perhaps we think that it was invented not that many years ago, but I think we've got strengths and weaknesses in each of these letters if we were to read all of them. Uh, And there is that very useful analysis. So let's begin and look at the strengths of the Ephesian church. Uh, And here we have it uh, in verses 2 and 3. And Jesus is telling them, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Now, I think you'll agree that this list of strengths of the Ephesian church is pretty impressive. They've worked hard. They've persevered in difficult times. And we need to understand that there were great pressures on the New Testament churches to deviate from the truth at that time. And particularly so in the great city of Ephesus, which had become home to the famous pagan shrine of Diana. It was an absolute mecca, if you like, of its time for the pagan followers to visit from all over the province of Asia. Ephesus as a city was overrun by pagan worshippers. But despite this pressure, we read that the church of Jesus Christ at Ephesus worked hard and they persevered. And we also read that they were diligent in upholding the truth of the gospel and they resisted the overwhelming influence of the very strong pagan presence. The letter says... I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. You cannot tolerate the wicked teachings of the pagans. And as if this were not enough, another pressure on the church was the emergence of so-called new apostles, people who were putting themselves up who were actually false. And again, we read that the Ephesian church resisted them. You have tested these who claim to be apostles, but are not 
and have found them false. And on top of all of that, the Ephesian Christians, we are told, have done all these things with perseverance, even though that perseverance has led to considerable hardship. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. You see, it would have been so much easier for them to have watered down the gospel. It would have been to their considerable earthly benefit if they had embraced rather than opposed these powerful men who were claiming to be the new apostles. But the Ephesian church endured hardship and inevitably became unpopular and even persecuted just so that they could remain faithful to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But doesn't all this resonate with you and with me and our circumstances in the age in which we live today? You see, the church and all that it stands for is hardly popular in these days and within the society in which we live, is it? All the time, the media are too quick to damage the name of the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever possible, they pick on us. They undermine our values. They turn our words around and against us to undermine us. And there is that growing pressure on the Christian church to move towards the more tolerant practices of the world in which we live. You see, suppose you and I were just for a moment to begin to water down the gospel message. Maybe we would suffer less rejection. Maybe we would experience less opposition in our daily lives. Perhaps even our church will be filled again. does sound rather tempting, doesn't it? You see, we have so much in common today with those Christians in the Ephesian church of 2,000 years ago. But to what extent do we at Lum match up to those Ephesian Christians? Could we be described similarly, commended for our deeds, our hard work, our perseverance, our defense of the gospel, even to the point of hardship? This is challenging stuff, isn't it? And yet, despite these excellent and worthy characteristics, we read on and we find that the Ephesian church had actually lost the plot. They were doing many things right, as we've just been thinking about. But in all their activity, they had lost their true focus. They had lost the motivation that was spiritual. Perhaps the whole thing had overwhelmed them. It had become a bit academic for them. They were all the time having to test whether people were saying the right or the wrong things. Maybe they'd become motivated purely out of duty. Or even worse, maybe they'd gained such momentum in their routine that they were now doing these things, their hard work, their endurance, for for the sake of personal pride. You know, even that can happen within a Christian church fellowship. Pride can be immensely destructive. But their weakness is summed up like this. They had lost 
their first love. Their faith in Jesus Christ was no longer their primary and vital focus. They had lost the essential, tender, practical love that they once had for each other. And all this had happened within the span of a single generation, a mere 30 years. But you know, this letter of some 2,000 years ago is here today in Scripture to remind you and me of the importance of our first love. You see, if Jesus Christ is not the centre of everything we do, and our love for each other is no longer steadfast, then we too could equally be described as having forsaken our first love. We too, like these Ephesian Christians, will have lost the plot because we can no longer see the wood for the trees. We too could have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. So this letter is here as a reminder. And we would do very well as individual Christians and also as a church fellowship to use this letter as a spiritual health check. Where do we stand today with our faith in the Lord Jesus? And where do we stand with our love for each other? But you know, that's not the end of the letter because it continues with a remedy to help the situation that these Ephesian Christians found themselves in. And there is help there for us too. The remedy is very simple actually. Jesus tells them, repent and do the things you did first. Can't get clearer than that, can you? But it does presuppose that a spiritual health check has been taken. Because that's necessary to show the shortcomings and bring people to repentance. It's important that we look at ourselves and have a spiritual health check. And we do notice the rather uncomfortable warning that follows. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Sadly, there is no longer a lampstand in Ephesus. But we still have a lampstand here at Lum. So be assured, severe though this statement seems, it is still motivated by the love of God the Father for his people. It's a warning to help the Ephesian Christians from falling astray to the point of no return. And it's here for you and I to look at and study this letter. But please don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any way suggesting that you and I have actually forsaken our first love here at the church in Lum. I'm certainly not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting and recommending is the great value of applying regularly spiritual health checks and particularly the ones that are contained here in this letter. There are others in the other letters too, but today we only have enough time to look at the one. You see, it's always better to have a routine health checkup, even if you're well. It's much better than to find out when the symptoms have all taken over. So these seven letters found at the beginning of Revelation contain very sound, useful and practical instruction and clear warnings to help us avoid losing the plot and to not take our eye off the ball. 
Now, I know I've dwelt upon I off the ball, but it does remind me of a story my dad used to tell. And uh, years and years ago, when he was a young lad, he was asked to umpire a cricket match. Uh, I think this happened towards the end of the Second World War. And uh, he was there on the cricket field and uh, things were going fine until uh, my dad noticed a rather interesting and unusual military plane. And as he followed its path across the sky, suddenly there was a shout of, How's that? Dad had not a clue what had been going on. But he had to make a decision, so he said, Not out! (laughs) And uh, he became an instant fan of the batting team and the focus of dagger looks from everyone else. But I think that illustrates the point. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to take our eye off the ball. As a church, we're going through times of rapid change. And it would be easy for us to become distracted. We need to keep our focus. And I'm reminded of those famous words in Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Um, that is so much the, the remedy. Uh, don't take your eye off Jesus. And do pray for the deacons in this church because we have such a responsibility to ensure that we don't lose sight of Jesus Christ in all the things that we do, in all the things that we are tasked to do. Do pray for the deacons, but pray for everyone too. So let's do this. Let's Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But let's do this collectively within a framework of love amongst each one of us as the body of people who are the saints at Lum. But there is a final thought, and it's worth just looking at this before we finish. And that is, towards the end of the letter, it says this. It says, to him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Put simply, if we ensure that we don't forsake our first love, then we can indeed look forward to a wonderful eternity in heaven with God. Now this phrase, to overcome, is quite an interesting one, and it's used frequently by John, not only in Revelation, but also elsewhere where he writes. And its actual meaning is an athletic or a military metaphor. It means to conquer, and it implies superiority and victory over a defeated enemy. And applied here spiritually, that means the defeat of Satan. To be an overcomer means that Satan is defeated. But let's remind us ourselves of a definition that John gives elsewhere. We read it this morning. In fact, I read it for you from his first letter. And the great importance in that letter is the message of love. And uh, this is what we read. It says, this is love for God. To obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And then there's a question. Who is it that overcomes the world? And the answer is this. Only he, or in our modern parlance, he or she, who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Who is it who overcomes the world? Only he or she who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So let us do just that as the saints at Lom who love each other and who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's do this in such a way that as we go through this process of change, this time of interregnum, let us fully maintain Jesus Christ as our first love.